but it's not about you. It's about Christ. The centerpiece is Christ. It's not about whether or not you're sinning or you can do or you can't do. It's about who is it about? It's about Jesus. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatton. All right, so if you've ever been on like a first date, which I'm assuming a lot of you have, the, what you usually do on the first date, right, is you start by asking like all the preliminary questions, right? When I met Abigail, we went through all the basics, right? It's like, how many siblings do you have? What's your favorite color? You know, how do you feel about alcohol? What's your third favorite dinosaur? Just all the stuff you really need to know about someone right off the bat. See, eventually this um, knowledge that you're gaining about someone, it becomes knowing them, right? But it starts off with like that preliminary kind of fact level, but it doesn't stay there, right? So as you grow in knowledge of somebody, you actually know their heart, you know their wants, you know their desires, you, you have something deeper than just a bunch of trivia facts about that person. But what if you just stopped there? That's like the, the level you got to. You, you progressed all the way through dating, getting married, everything, but you never went past the facts and trivia level. Someone's like, you know, why do you love your wife? You'd be like, well, her favorite color is red. And she's never been to Delaware. You'd be, people would be like, what? That's like, that, ha- that means nothing. Why does that mean that you love your wife? Because you have these random facts about her. It'd be worse, right, if you looked over at the person's wife and they were like, he does love me. Knows I've never been to Delaware, right? That wouldn't mean anything to anyone. You would know that something was wrong. But we do this to God all the time. So we, we say, well, why do people love God? Like, well, or how do, how do I know that I love God? Well, I can name all 12 disciples. So I'm glad you have this, like, trivia fact about the Bible. Like, that doesn't do anything for your relationship with God. Trivia is not how we love God. So we're in this series on 1 Corinthians. It's called Church Fails. And in this series, Paul is going through a list of behaviors, a list of things that he's basically saying, hey, the church doesn't do this. The church doesn't behave this way. This is not how God's children should act. Well, today we're going to be in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. It's starting a new section. See, 8 through 11... Paul is going to start talking about the liberty that believers have, the freedom that Christians have in Christ, um, away from sin. Uh, basically, freedom from legalism is a good way to look at it. But in this section, he's largely going to use food sacrifice to idols as the vehicle for the discussion. Right. So what I want you to understand is that this isn't explicitly meant to be, for for us at least, it's not just a conversation about food sacrifice to idols. It's a conversation about what you're free to do in Christ, what you're, what's okay for you to do that's not sinful, that's not legalistic. That's just the vehicle of the time. It was a cultural issue. See, back then, especially in the city of Corinth, so we know that Corinth was an especially um, idol-ridden place. There was a lot of immorality, sexual uh, immorality especially. And what we see 
is that a lot of idol worship back at that time consisted of basically taking your sacrifice, you know, taking your animal or your grain offering to the temple where they would sacrifice it and, and essentially roast it. And then people would eat it. You'd have a, you'd have a, you know, you'd have a feast. You would enjoy the food, enjoy the offering. That was considered worship. You went to the temple, you, you gave up your offering and then you feasted on it. And, and even more than that, there was a lot of food in the marketplaces that was literally sold cheaper because it was essentially, I don't know, processed food that they went to the temple. They made the sacrifice that, you know, if you sacrifice a whole cow and you ate a bunch of it right there, you still have a bunch left over. So you took that in a marketplace and you sold it. And people could go get a really good price on meat because it had been used in a sacrifice instead of just, you know, killed that day for being sold or whatever. All right. So there was all of this cultural emphasis around this discussion. And in the Old Testament, the Jews had been told, do not eat uh, food sacrificed to idols because it's it's a worship act, right? They're told to separate themselves from the culture, to look different, to only worship their God. They're not even get the perception that they were worshiping another God, right? So then the question becomes, where's the line now that we're freed in Christ from law, but the law doesn't just disappear, what has the law become? What's place? What is its place for us? And Paul is going to use meat sacrifice idols or food sacrifice idols as the discussion topic to walk us through how we should behave when it comes to what we're free to do, what we're now able to do. He's essentially answering this question from the, the church in Corinth. Is this sin or is this not sin? Am I sinning when I when I do this act, or am I free to do this act? And that's what he's going to be discussing. discussing. Paul sets up this section uh, to say that love always has a certain outcome. The first thing we're going to see is that we love has a certain outcome, and you can actually evaluate a lot of your decisions, a lot of what you're doing, a lot of what, um, a, a lot of what sin is or isn't, based on whether or not it has the outcome of truly loving other people. So look at 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning, now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes one conceited, but love, defi but love edifies people. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Okay, so the first thing he says, you ever notice in life, that truly wise people are very humble because wise people have uh, one thing that they understand, which is that they don't know everything. And as a matter of fact, the wiser someone is, the more they understand how much they don't know, how much knowledge is outside of what they know. It's truly humbling because no matter how much you know, there's a chance you're wrong. There's actually uh, an ever-increasing chance you're wrong given how much you don't know. And that Wisdom, that understanding of how much you don't know, it keeps you humble. What, it, what we also see is that the smartest people around us in life, they tend to be the most arrogant, the most blind, and the most impressed with their selves. Right? See, because people who focus on just pure knowledge, just how much they know, get to a place where they know more than most people around them, or at least they think they know more than most people around them. And at that point, they begin to look down on everyone else because they know everything. They know everything that they need to know. You ever met one of those people that has all the answers all the time? 
that person is usually very pretentious because they, they've decided they're the smartest person in the room. Everybody should really just be asking them for advice because they've got it all figured out. See, that's not wisdom that leads to humility. That's knowledge that leads to arrogance. Paul says that knowledge has this effect, but love always builds other people up. Love always focuses externally on someone else and on making that person be stronger or more built up. Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, this we're, we're going to analyze just this first for a second because one of the things that we see here is that what, what is expected of the progression of Paul's dis, uh, thought process here is that we want this verse to say, if anyone is loved by God, he has perfect knowledge, right? If, if, if anyone loves God, he has perfect knowledge. Like the more you know, the more you understand about God, the more you love him, right? But he flips it. Because instead of saying, well, if you love God, you have perfect knowledge, he says, if you love God, you're known by him. And what is he saying here? He's saying, you're not loved by God because of how much you know. You're not loved by God because you have more Bible trivia, more answers. You're not loved by God because you're smarter or you perform better or you have something special to offer him. You're loved by him before you had a chance to do any of that. See, God has initiated his love in our life by offering us redemption, by offering us salvation, by making himself known at all. You know, there's, there's potential that, right, that we could have been born into this world with sin and God just said, you know, they've all sinned. I'm just going to let it all crash and burn. I'm not going to make myself known. I'm not going to reveal myself. And yet instead, from literally the very beginning, God began the process of revealing his redemption to the world because he loved us. So see, for us to love God, the Bible tells us he has to have first loved us. So you're not loved by God because you did or know something. You're loved by God because he knows you, because he chose to initiate that love. All of a sudden, your value is not in how much trivia you have about him. Your value is just because he loves you. You're not earning that value. It's given to you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, um, sorry, for... If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless or unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you have ever read that passage in Second Peter, it, I call it the Christian roadmap. It's essentially the walkthrough of how we mature in Christ. We start with just having faith, and we progress all the way to this point where we love others and love God fully. If you've ever spent time with that passage, what you'll see is that you're usually somewhere learning one of those attributes, and you need to begin to move forward to the next one, mastering the one you're on. And even once you've mastered one that you're on, they grow in increasing measure your whole life. You'll always be getting better at those things. If, you'll, if, if you notice in that, that roadmap, if you will, knowledge is very, very early on the list. 
That is where most Christians get stuck their entire lives. Most believers, they get saved, they start becoming generally good people, better people than they were when they weren't saved, and then they start accumulating a lot of facts and trivia about the Bible, and then they quit. And they think for the rest of their lives that they show up to church and they they know most of the answers, they can give you most of the, the quick facts about the Bible, that they're good Christians, they're good believers. See, believers who progress into maturity, they aren't concerned with just having all the Sunday school answers. They're concerned with loving God and loving others. They're concerned with living a life that's selfless. They didn't just stop at the trivia stage of knowing who God is. Now, it's okay if it starts there, right? We get into this word and we begin to learn facts about God, but that has to progress to a relationship with Him. You can't just know God's favorite color. You have to know who He is, what He wants for your life, how He loves you, and how He loves other people. You have to progress past that. In that same passage in 2 Peter, it says that if you are maturing in Christ like this, that you won't be useless. Now, I love that because what I often tell people is that the battle in a non-believer's life between sin and not sin is heaven and hell. Right? It's a life or death battle. You have to be forgiven. You have to get over to that place where God makes you right with him. But if you are a believer, you're already saved. So what's the battle for sin in your life? It's usefulness for God or uselessness. You're going to live your whole life as a believer and be completely useless for the kingdom. You might get into heaven, but you didn't do anything. You weren't useful for God's kingdom. So you can be useless in your knowledge, which is making you conceited, or you can have a true knowledge of God, a relationship with him that leads to freedom. See, legalism is a focus on rules and regulations. It's what can I or can I not do? But in the New Testament, we're told that God's law is called the law of liberty or the law, uh, the royal law, right? It's given all these special names, and it's always summed up in this way. Love others and love God, right? It's no longer this list of 400 rules and regulations that you have to keep to a T, which was never meant to be followed like that anyway. That list was designed to show you that you actually couldn't do it, that you were going to fail, right? But the royal law, the law of liberty was love God and love others that you're actually free from legalism, you're free from always trying to figure out what anybody else thinks is sinful. See, here's the thing about legalism. Legalism can't even be uh, confined to a period of time without changing. Because what we think is wrong or right as a culture, even as Christians, it's always shifting on the outer rim. Like, we all agree, like, murder's bad. And then we get to the outer rim of, little regulations and we start questioning well you know that's okay now or that that was no it's never been about keeping all these rules and regulations it's always been about loving other people look at verse four therefore concerning the eating of food sacrificed idols we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no god but one for even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords okay There is a central tenet in Judaism that, that you've probably heard in your life it is God is one. 
Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the God is one. God is one. That is a central tenet of the Jewish faith. Now, why is that? It's a proclamation, one, of monotheism, right, that, that they worshiped one God, not many. But it's also a profession that they believed that there were not other gods. There was only Yahweh. Now, why does that matter? Because gods oftentimes in uh, this time period were regional. So somebody might worship a god because they lived in an area where that god was perceived as the god that provided and and ruled that area. And then if they left or they were taken over by a, a different world power, they could change gods. You could adapt. There was another god. They, this god rules this hilltop. So now that I'm over here, I worship this god. Or now that that king with his invading army brought his god to me, now I worship that god. And the reason that the Jews throughout uh, human history were so obstinate, so hard to, to keep down, the reason they maintained their national and ethnic identity was because under all circumstances, they said, no, 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 not, not this God worships this hilltop or this king brought his new God with him. There is only one God, and that God is Yahweh. That is it. They never budged off of that claim, and it, it actually became almost a... Uh, an empty phrase, right? It was something that they just used to kind of profess almost just Jewish identity. Yeah, God is one. I'm, a, I'm one of the good guys. Put me on the list, right? And it was just this proclamation of faith that they made. And what what's going to happen here is that Paul, he's going to say, we know for the second time, we know that idols aren't real gods because we know God is one. We know that this block of wood that you shaped into a monkey is not a real God. It's not something that actually has power. Now, what he's not doing, because he, he says this other places in, in his writings, he's not denying that there are powers in this world unseen that are opposed to God. He's not taking that away. He's not saying that idols don't have a, a spiritual backer, an enemy. He's saying the idol itself has no power. It's not real, right? It's not that that's as though that that's a lesser God that God is just kind of keeping down or has more power than is that that God is literally just an inanimate block of wood. It doesn't matter. And he's saying that, that even though there are many of these, even though there are gods on every hilltop and every corner brought to us by every king, we know that they're all false. They're all empty. They don't have anything to offer. Look at verse 6. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Okay, so this, this is a huge moment. Paul first says, we know that there is only one God, right? The, the classic claim. And he repeats the tenets of what that is. He says, we know that there's only one God, the Father, and all things exist from him, right? See, all existence is being issued forth from God. If God w didn't issue forth creation, none of us would be here. It would cease to exist in a moment. All existence comes forth from the Father. It's dependent on Him. And it says that we exist for Him. We know that the central purpose of God uh, for all of humanity, for all of creation, is to glorify Him. right? And then we, we understand that even that, not only is it deserved, making it not selfish or not prideful, but beyond that, it's actually good for us. When we glorify God, it builds us up. It makes us fulfilled. So we don't have to 
fret about God doing everything to glorify himself because that happens to be what we run on, giving glory to God. It's what builds us up. It's why everything else is empty, why everything else leaves us broken. But then he goes on and he's going to say something that is shocking. He's now going to take the phrase and he's going to essentially add something to it. He says, also, there's one Lord. And that word means master or ruler. He says, there's one king. And then he says, and that king is Jesus Christ. And now he's saying two things. He's using that intentionally. He says, uh, you've heard the phrase, right? Lord Jesus Christ, right? Those are all three titles or all three parts of who Christ was. One part, Lord, ruler, master. The next thing, Jesus, the guy, the man, this person was it. That when, when we say Jesus is the Christ, see, Christ meant Messiah, meant chosen one. It meant the one sent by God to save, to redeem. And so when you attach Christ to Jesus, right, because it's not his last name, what you're saying is this guy was the Messiah, right? And lots of people have claimed to be the Messiah. Lots of people have claimed since Jesus to be the Messiah. But they're saying, when they say Jesus Christ, they're saying that man that lived in Nazareth, that was born in Bethlehem, he was the actual Christ, the actual Messiah, the only one that can save and redeem. And he says that that one man, he was the Lord. He was the master and the ruler. He says, by, by whom are all things and all things exist through him. In Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse, hold on. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having uh, made peace through the blood of his cross. That's in Colossians. That's called the centrality of Christ. It's a passage where Paul shows how much has been given to Christ, how Christ is the centrality of our faith, of our belief, how Christ is who... God built up and exalted and made uh, the first to be resurrected, the king of all things, gave all things over to him. Here's the thing. It says all things hold together through Christ. That means that Christ is the one actually sustaining existence, and he has been given all authority over it forever. See, what's happening here is that Paul took God is one, a classic statement, and he said God is one. He affirmed monotheism. He said there is one God. And then in Colossians, he says, and that God is seen. The invisible God is seen in his visible son, Jesus Christ. See, there's a charge against Christianity that uh, there's a couple charges. There's one that we believe in multiple gods. There's another that we believe that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just man, but he was adopted and made a God. These are all untrue. What scripture shows us is that God the Father and God the Son are the same. They are one. They are a part of the Trinity, right, which is also the Holy Spirit. And all three of these persons, they share an essence that is 
God. There is one God, and that God is also seen in the visible person of Jesus Christ. This would have been a huge moment for Paul to say, that one God is Jesus. It's not just Yahweh as you know him, but it is also the Son. St. Augustine said, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all in all, and all are one. You get it? Tracking? Good to go? Listen, if you want to perfectly comprehend the Trinity, it's not possible. And, and here's the thing. That is a good thing. Why is it that the Trinity not being something you can fully process a good thing? Because if you could fit the infinite-ness of God in your head, he would all of a sudden not be infinite. Your head is not big enough to contain all of who God is. That should comfort you. Because if you've managed to fit all of God in your head, you are worshiping something smaller, something incomplete, something that is not infinite and all-powerful. You're worshiping something that you can comprehend. We cannot comprehend God. How do we know that the Trinity is real? Because the Bible teaches us that the Trinity is real. And the church, since the earliest days, has affirmed the truth of the Trinity that God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. I'm going to read that quote to you again because it's confusing. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each in each and all in each, and each in all and all in all, and all are one. That is probably the best description of the Trinity I've ever found. It's as clear as it can get. And really, it boils down to this. Why do we believe the Trinity? Because the Bible says so. So what is the point of this passage? What is Paul doing here? He's saying, you are free in Christ. You can eat meat sacrificed to this totally non-existent God. That's, that's not a sin, but it's not about you. It's about Christ. The centerpiece is Christ. It's not about whether or not you're sinning or you can do or you can't do. It's about who is it about? It's about Jesus. So if freedom isn't so I can act however I want, what is it for? See, we're now free to love God, which we couldn't do before. When you're trapped in your sin, you can only love your sin. You are enslaved to sin. So now we can love God, and because we can love God, we are now free to love others. When, uh, when you become a, a parent, I've heard, that uh, you, you suddenly have to monitor the kind of things that you're you know, maybe watching in your house. Right? Maybe while the kids are up and around, you don't put on you know, an R-rated movie just because it's one of your favorite movies or whatever. And here's the thing. It's not great parenting to just be like, well, I'm an adult. I have a right to watch this R-rated movie. I'm not going to let this kid stop me. That's not the point. And we know instinctively that doesn't even make sense. That's not good parenting. See, what does a parent do? A parent understands that their child, who is immature, who is not able to process the information that's going to be in that movie, they understand that they need to sacrifice their own liberty in this moment, sacrifice their own right to watch whatever movie that's not going to bother them because they can process it correctly for their kid. They're going to set aside what they can do because it might hurt someone who's not ready for it, who can't handle it because they're not mature enough. And we understand that that's how it works. But here's the thing. 
Christianity is the same. There are some of us, and, and this, by, by the way, goes by area, not by person. It's not that you are in every area more mature than your brother or sister to be left or right. It's that in a specific sin struggle, you might be more mature than your brother or sister to your left and right in that struggle. And the key is, it's not about your right to do a thing or to not do a thing. The question is, are you willing to sacrifice your right to love that person? Look at verse 7. However, not all people have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So think about this. You're in this place called Corinth, and you're sharing the gospel, and people are getting saved. What are they getting saved out of? Idol worship. That's the struggle in the city. Lots of the believers in the Corinthian church had dealt with being someone who worshipped idols. So here's the thing. You, who may know this block of wood has no power. It is a fake god. It's not has no power, has no meaning. I don't care if somebody uh, set some meat on fire in front of it and said, well, we're worshipping. I can eat that meat because I know I'm not worshipping this block of wood. But the problem is, your brother or sister to your left or right, who spent time thinking they were committing an act of worship, they're not ready for that. They, they actually feel like that idol may have some meaning, some purpose. It may be real. It may, it may be a real God, and by eating that meat, they're worshiping it. See, he's not saying that that's actually what's happening. He's saying that they are not mature enough to, to commit that act without feeling guilt and shame. See, it's made sin because they're convicted of their past actions in a way that makes them feel like they're committing it right here, right now. We call this the weaker brother. The weaker brother is the person who, in this thing, they don't realize that they've been freed from that. That has no real bearing in their life. It causes them to sin by taking part in that. See, we can make something sin that's not evil. Like money is neutral. Money is a, is a neutral thing. It's a, you know, we see people do a lot of bad things with money, and we see what greed does to people, and we think, well, money's bad. No, money is necessary. It's a neutral but we make it bad by the way we treat it. We make it an idol. We worship it. We chase it. We use it inappropriately. That's what makes money bad. You can make anything a sin depending on how you treat it. Look at verse 8. Now, food will not bring us close to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you... The one who has knowledge dining in the idol's temple with his conscience, if he is weak, um, will his conscience, if he is weak, not be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined, the brother or sister, for whose sake Christ died. Paul says, first of all, you're not holy or less holy because of your diet. Right again, this is something that had become a regulation. The Jews had a pretty strict diet. You've ever heard of being kosher? And But the thing is they had translated this into not doing this to love others, love God, to be separate from the culture so they could point people to God. They had translated this into a regulation. If I'm keeping my diet kosher, I'm holy. And Paul's like, what you eat does not make you clean or unclean. If what you eat is not how you are holy, that's not what gets you to God. He says Christ is going to be the only thing that brings you to God. What Christ did on the cross is how you get to God. But he says to seek the love of your weaker brothers. 
Now, again, I want to clarify that term weaker brother. What it means is the person who's offended by more. See, freedom in Christ is freedom from all the rules and regulations. Is so is showing you that you don't have to be offended by every little thing. You don't have to think that everything is sin because all that matters is whether or not you're loving God or loving others. Whether or not you're trying to be in the presence of the living God and bring other people into that same presence. So he's using this term of, of weaker brothers. It means those who are offended by this thing. And in verse 10, he gives this scenario. And I want you to understand, the scenario is not like real, right? He's painting a picture. He's talking about these people who have said, well, I have a right to eat this meat. It's sacrificed to a block of wood. Who cares? And he's going, okay, great. And then he takes that train of thought, that argument, that logic, and he applies it to this version where he goes, okay, so you're so free, you can even go to the temple where the idols are, and you can eat in there, and who cares because it's all fake, right? What Paul's not saying that that's okay. What he's saying is, okay, you're that free. You know that much. It's almost, it's this sarcasm we've seen throughout Corinthians over and over again. He goes, you're that free that you can go into the temple of the idol itself and eat the meat because you know it's all fake. He says, but here's the problem. You are putting your knowledge and your liberty in Christ ahead of loving your brother, of loving God, of pointing people to the truth. And you are now sinning because you're hurting someone else because your brother is going to look, see you in the temple. And he uses this weird phrase. He says, they'll be strengthened to eat meat sacrificed to idols. What does that phrase mean? The word he's using there is the exact same root word as the word for builds up in the first verse when he says that love builds up. So what, what is he talking about? He's saying the point of love is to strengthen people and build them up. But instead, because of your right, your freedom, your knowledge, you're building people up to sin. You're strengthening them to be in sin, to fall to their temptations and their weaknesses. See, he's, he set the premise very early. He said, this is what love does. And we've gotten to this point, and he says, do you see how just because you're free to do it doesn't mean it's loving? Doesn't mean it's, it's good for other people, that it, it cares about someone else? He says, you've edified them right into sin. He says, you're destroying what Christ died to save. How could you? You say you love Christ and you love him so much that in your freedom, you're going to take your right and your knowledge and you're going to destroy something that he died to save. How could that possibly be our priority and how we walk through this? Look at verse 12. And so... By sinning against the brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to sin. How do I love God? I love what He loves. I love others. See, if I know that God loves something and I say that I love Him, how can I love Him and hate what He loves? It doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, Philip has always taught us that phrase. He says, uh, you can't say you love me and then go, yeah, but your wife, eh, not really a big fan of her. Really, you know what? As a matter of fact, I'd like to hang out with you, but I really don't want to hang out with her. We're not going to be close. That's not how that works because you can't say you love me and hate what I love. See, if we love God, we will love others. What Paul is saying here is, the sin is not 
eating the meat. It's hating who Christ loves. See, you are free to eat that meat, but you're sinning because you're hurting God's, what God cares for. And then Paul says something, and the force is actually a little bit lost in our translation. He says, in, in my Bible, it just says, he'll never eat meat again. But the actual phrase in the Greek sounds more like this. I'll never eat meat again forever. Right? There's this added emphasis. And what he is saying is, I would rather never practice my right ever again. I would rather never get to eat meat ever again than hurt Christ. That is love. You think if if me doing something in my household caused my wife to sin every single day and be further from God, do you think that it would be okay for me to go, well, but it's not causing me to sin, so I'm, I'm going to keep doing it? No, you would know that that would be abusive, actually. That would be selfish. See, the reality is, if I love her and I love God, and something that I'm free to do was causing her to move further and further away from Christ, I would never, ever do it again forever because that would be more important. Now, as a disclaimer, I want you to understand something about this passage. This passage is not written to the weaker brother. It's not. And what does that mean? There's two things that that means. First of all, the goal for the weaker brother is to mature. right? See, if this passage was written to the Corinthians in the church who were weaker, who were being offended by this, he would have said, don't be, don't be bothered by this. You're free in Christ. You don't have to worry about this block of wood. Grow into a maturity that says that doesn't matter. right? That's the message to the weaker brother here. And because that's the message, that leads to the second implication, which is this. This passage is not a weapon for the weak. right? This is not so that the weakest among us can sudden be, suddenly be the behavior modifier, the, the morality police for the group. You don't get to walk around church and go, oh, you can't do that, cause me to sin. That's, nope, you're, you're, you're wrong because that causes, no, that's not how that works. Right? This is written to the mature, to the knowledgeable, or the ones who think that they have knowledge, and it's saying don't practice your knowledge at the expense of those you should be loving, of those you should be watching out for and caring for. But this isn't a bat to beat other Christians up with about how they're not matching up to your standards of morality, that just goes right back to legalism. That just once again becomes a weapon in the hand of somebody who thinks following all the rules is what leads us to righteousness. The point of this passage is quit asking, is this sin or is this not sin, which is just legalism, and it's ask, how do I keep from causing other people to sin? How do I lead other people into God's presence instead of pointing them away from God? See, that's the heart of a believer. The heart of a believer is not perfection in in your day-to-day life. It's not following all the rules and regulations. It's saying, how do I constantly tell people about Jesus? How do I share the gospel with my actions, with my reputation, with my words? How do I live a life that makes disciples? And see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're talking about believers or non-believers looking at you. Because if you're looking at somebody less mature than you, and they are a believer, you're still supposed to be pointing them towards God. 
And if you're looking at somebody who's less mature than you that isn't yet a believer, then you're still supposed to be pointing them towards God. It's the same thing. Your maturity is that everything you do is designed to bring everybody behind you in this process closer to God. And you're looking this way at the more mature believers, and you better hope that they're pointing you closer to God, not taking into account just their own rights and leading you away from God. We're called to live above reproach. The question I ask myself about this passage is this. When will I love God so much that sin breaks my heart? When will I love God so much that hurting his children is the worst thing I could ever imagine and I would rather go without and actually, you know, I said at the beginning that meat sacrificed to idols is just a vehicle. Maybe it doesn't apply to us. But here's the thing. Uh, it would be really hard for me, actually, to give up meat. Like, I actually think that the analogy stands for me because I'm sitting here going, you're telling me that, that in order to not lead a believer to sin, I might have to give up steak? And my flesh says, well, I'm out. Like, <laughs> sorry about you. I have a right to eat steak. There's nothing wrong with it. But the question is, would I actually give it up if it meant loving other people? Now, don't, don't, don't mishear me. The passage is not telling you, go home, stop eating meat. Again, we don't have that cultural issue here. The question is, what are you more concerned with your right to do, your freedom to do, than loving your brothers and sisters and pointing people to God? Be free and use that freedom to love God and love others. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.